Now we begin our reading today after Jesus' trial, where Pilate has finally succumbed to the Jewish leaders, or the demands of the Jewish leaders, starting at verse 16. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the, uh, to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. And our second reading is Acts chapter 1, starting at, at verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a, 40, over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria 
and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and, many, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Hi, my name is Rob Forsyth, um, and it's a great pleasure to be here with you again at uh, the combined four and six. Greetings from the 8.30 and the 10.30. Let's pray. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. If you've been hanging around the Christian faith for some time, you can easily lose sight as to how weird it is, especially its more central claims. Sure, belief that God is real and the source of all that exists is not in itself weird. It may be contested, but it makes sense of so much about us and the universe. But the claim that God became man is way out there. It's a very weird claim when you think about it. And yet, as we would have heard if you'd been to our Christmas Day services, services, the opening words of John's Gospel make this assertion. I quote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and nothing was made that has been made without him. Then jumping to verse 9 of chapter 1 of John's Gospel, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. How coming into the world? Verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The English word incarnate is derived from the Latin way of saying became flesh. So we call the becoming flesh the incarnation of the Son of God. Now just think a minute about what that means. God the Son, or the Word, that was God and through whom all things were made, entered the world, his world, the same way that you and I entered the world. You were conceived, you grew in a woman's uterus, and then you were born. You made that perilous journey we all have to make 
to the outside world. God the Son did that. He was conceived, grew in a woman's uterus, and then he was born. He made that perilous journey we all must make to the outside world. And this means that God becoming man required the full involvement of another, a woman, one who would become the mother of the Word made flesh. And she has been our focus here uh, at, uh, at the Garrison Church in our sermons for this month of January. She was named Mary, although that's not something very special about her because apparently about 50% of Jewish women in the first century had that name. Perhaps we should call her Mary of Nazareth, although given how many Marys there are, even little Nazareth may have had more than one Mary. The New Testament designates her typically as Mary, the mother of Jesus, or in the Gospel of John, simply the mother of Jesus. Now, Mary is important in two ways. She is important by the sheer fact that she is the mother of the Word made flesh, that she's important because of who her child was and is. And I'm going to spend most of my time this afternoon on that importance. But she's also important as a person, in her own right, as it were, and what we can glean from her as a person. In each of our sermons, Justin and I have, have made the point, mentioned the great division, the sad division, I should call it really, between Christian churches today as back in the past, how to treat Mary. And we've mentioned how easy it is to be put off, as it were, by what looks like a major overestimation of her by some sections of the Christian community. It's probably true, as it turns out, that neither Protestant nor Roman Catholic or Orthodox have treated Mary fairly, fairly over the years. One making too much of her, others, in reaction, far too little. We need to get beyond that. The best treatments of Mary come from a correct and deep understanding of her son. That is, she's important because of who her child was. And who was her child? Over the years and then centuries, and it took centuries, the Christian movement wrestled with how to express clearly the implications of the New Testament testimony to who Jesus was, and therefore its implications for Mary as well. I'm going to take you now to three significant statements in that process, and then we'll see as we end the, 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 the implications for Mary of Nazareth. I want to start with what you've just said, what's called the Apostles' Creed, although it wasn't written by the Apostles. In fact, the version we have is from the 5th century of the Christian era, but it harks back to a 2nd century, that's the 100s, a summary of the heart of Christianity. It was used to affirm Christian commitment in baptism. It was a simple way of expressing the Christian faith into which one is baptised. And it's still used that way today. By the way, in this context, saying I believe doesn't mean here's what I think or this is my opinion. It means this is what I'm committed to. This is what I believe and trust in, these truths. And by saying it in church like we do, typically here, we're reaffirming our own personal commitment to that Christian faith. 
of owning our baptism, as it were. Here's what it says about who Jesus is. I believe in Jesus Christ, or Jesus Messiah, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Very simple. Conceived by the Holy Spirit is an allusion to the message of the angel to Mary in Luke chapter 1. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you and the child shall be called Son of God. It's clear, it's simple, but the next creed, the Nicene Creed, which you do have it here at all? You have it here when you have communion. That's been a custom in churches to say that creed at communions. This wasn't a baptismal creed. This arose out of a crisis of, authority, of Christian teaching. And it is from the fourth century, that is the early 300s, and it rose out of a controversy of what is the relation of Jesus Christ, our Lord, to God? What's that relationship? And this is the creed which clarified and laid down what that relationship is. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. That's the same as the Apostles' Creed, but it goes on. Eternally begotten from the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. What they're trying to say is two things at once that may seem at first in real tension. They're trying to say that the Lord Jesus Christ, the only thing, is a one being with the Father. He's not a lesser God or a large creature, a one being with the Father. Homoousios for the uh, Greek speakers amongst us. The, the two Greek speakers, maybe three. Uh, maybe four, I'm sorry, I forgot uh, Roger was there. Homo, of one being with the Father. That, that was a crucial phrase. But at the same time, they want to say, he is begotten eternally by the Father. He is derived in some sense from the Father. Hence the phrase, he's God from God. He's light from light. He's true God from true God. Begotten, not made. See, when you beget, and a lot of begetting going on in this church, I've been told. Uh, when you beget, you beget something equal to yourself. When you make something, you make what's your creature, see? And so the point that the, they were making is begotten by, the, by not made, but eternally begotten. There was never when he was not. Never when there was, he was not. And even and to, sinks, to clink it, through him all things are made. In other words, all reality comes into being through him. So eternally from the Father and yet eternally one with the Father. Then, instead of simply saying, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, as the Apostles' Creed did, the Nicene Creed said this. Forgive the non-inclusive language. English suffers from not having a, simple wo- a singular word that replies to all humanity. Maybe humanity will work, but here it is. For us men, which means here, us humans at this point, and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was incarnate, there's that word, of the Virgin Mary, and became man. So the one who is one in being with God, the Father, now by the power of the Holy Spirit, is incarnate 
of the Virgin Mary and becomes man, or as more recent creeds puts it, truly human. That's early 4th century, 300s. And lastly, and most importantly for our topic today, we jump another 100 years to 451 after Christ, a third statement that was worked out on another question that tr troubled them. What's, how is the humanity and divinity of, of the Lord Jesus related? You say he's God and man, how, how, how does that work? Or how does that happen? This statement was not a creed, and you probably have not heard it, although it's quite important in church history, history of our faith. It's called the definition of Chalcedon, which like the Nicene Creed, is named after a town where it was agreed. And this definition emphasized the unity of the one divine Son of God, both God and man. One person, two natures. And here's the relevant line that involves Mary. One and the same Son, not God and man just together, no, one only, one and the same Son. Now look at this, this takes some thinking. Begotten from the Father before all ages as to the divinity. We saw that with the Nicene Creed. But now it adds, and in the, in, in the latter days, for us and our salvation, was born as to the humanity from Mary the Virgin Theotokos. His divine nature, eternally from the Father, begotten from the Father before all ages, eternally. But his human nature, his human nature in time from the Virgin Mary, born as to the humanity from Mary the Virgin Theotokos. And here she is called, I've left the word untranslated in, from the Greek, Theotokos or Theotokos. Theotok, is that right? Theotokos. It's really annoying having people in your congregation who know more than you do about Greek. <laughs> which is my problem every time I come here at this service, actually. Or the four o'clock one, I mean, not the six, the, the six I'm safe. Theotokos, I guess the little arrow thing over the O is the way, thank you. Theotokos. Well, I can say without fear of contradiction that Theotokos means something like God-bearer. The one who bore God. The point they're trying to make here is that the child Mary bore was not just the human Jesus. No, that was the divine Son who is both God and human. Therefore, she is rightly called Theotokos, the bearer of God. Sometimes this is rendered not entirely accurately, but the phrase the mother of God, which is a bit off putting, but it could be technically right in the sense that is, she is the mother of the one who was God, namely the God the Son. Although I prefer the translation uh, by another scholar who suggests Theotokos should be pronounced the one who gave birth to the one who was God, which I think kind of works. The one who gave birth to the one who is God. The one and the same Son, begotten from the Father before all ages as to the divinity. And the latter days for us and our salvation was born as to the humanity from Mary the Virgin, the one who gave birth to the one who is God. And we honour Mary for that unique role as the one 
who gave birth to the one who is God. Now make up my comment. I know today the word unique has become a varied word. You could say somewhat unique, right? The other day, even on the ABC I heard it, could you believe it? Somewhat unique, very unique. I'm not a pedant, I'm just precise. That's nonsense. Unique is unique. And certainly here, she is not a little bit unique or a lot unique. She is unique. Because no other has borne the one who is God. No other has been the bearer of the one who is God. And that's why she is only one of the two historical figures mentioned in our creeds. We honour her every time we profess the faith. The other one, I'm afraid, is not so much honoured. That's more, more dishonourable wrench, I guess you might say, in the creed for the other one. We'll, we'll forget about him at the moment. So we honour Mary for her astounding and unique role in the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ. As Justin said so well last Sunday in his sermon, Mary is a human being like us. She too needs to be saved by the death and resurrection of, as it turns out, her son. Only the son and the spirit intercede for us, according to the New Testament anyway. And yet she has a very special place in the story of the gospel. And that's why we should honour her and hold her memory in high regard, the one who gave birth to the one who is God. Now, I don't know if you like the logo to the series. Did you make any sense of it? It took me a while. But I think I've worked it out. The key is the one on the left is, is Eve, as in Adam and Eve. The one on the right is Mary, the one who, one who gave birth to the one who is God. And you'll notice that a pregnant Mary is holding Eve's hand, as you might do if you're pregnant, to feel your baby. <laughs> and underneath is a snake, which is wound around Eve's legs, but Mary's treading on its head. Now that snake is an allusion, I think, to the words of God in the story of, the, of when sin enters the world through the sin of Adam, as Eve leads him to do it. And the snake is told, the snake craftily cons them, and the snake is told by God that he may bite the heel of the offspring of the woman, but the woman's offspring will, will bruise his head. I think what this is saying is that the preg Mary is, drawing, is consoling Eve, you might say, in this symbolic picture, it's only symbolic of course, consoling Eve with her son, yet to be born, who will undo that which so tragically occurred on her watch. It's rather nice in some way. So I'm glad I, did any of us look that beforehand, that that's what it was? It's quite, quite interesting, isn't it? You looked it up, that's not the same. You've got to work it out for yourself. Uh, Colin, you can work it out for yourself. Now, Whoops, I've gone backwards. No, I haven't. I wouldn't want to push this too far, though, because the New Testament itself does not draw, even though it may be waiting to be drawn, that parallel between Eve and Mary. It draws a parallel between Mary's son and Adam, between Adam and the Lord Jesus Christ, or as 1 Corinthians puts it, between the first and the last Adam, the first and the last man, as it were. Okay, so far we've been seeing all, all our all time the way in which Mary is important. Important by the sheer fact 
that she is a mother of the Word made flesh, that she is the mother of the one who is God for us. It's now turn, time to turn more briefly to the, to the second reason that she's important, what we can glean of her as an actual real person. This has been the focus of our sermons these last four weeks up until today. In fact, you'll see on the front of the handout a summary of the, the headings that you may or may not have all got to. Some of you may have missed them. They're still available on, uh, on our website through the YouTube, I believe. We began with the unexpected appearance of the angel Gabriel to a young Mary. And by the way, she was young. You got married in those days, 14, 13. So this, and this is, from our point of view, a young teenager, amazingly. She is told that she's to have a son who will reign on the throne of David forever. And we heard Mary's trusting, humble response, which, as it were, gets everything going. I am the Lord's servant. You, may your word to me be fulfilled. Then we met Mary a month or so later, after the baby was born, I should say, in the temple, where the child is recognised by an old man there, Simeon, as, quote, the Lord's salvation, which God has prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. But to Mary it is said that the child will be opposed, perhaps because of what it's going to be. But then come the rather chilling words, and a sword will pierce your soul too. Thirdly, we dealt with Mary now with the 12-year-old grown up. They didn't have teenagers in those days, but teenage Jesus. Staying behind in the temple of Jerusalem when the Nazareth mob had gone down for the for Passover and were one day on their way back home again, discovered no Jesus. He's back, where is he? He justified his absence from the group by saying, don't you know, it must be about my father's, my father's business. And we heard how Mary, in response to this somewhat enigmatic defence, treasured all these things in her heart as we were, we were urged to do so ourselves. And last week, we came finally upon two different sides of Mary. She's not all perfect, that woman. How in a dealing with her, now with her adult son, on one hand, telling the steward of the feast when the wine ran out, do whatever he tells you, implying something's going to happen, which it did, of course, the water became white. And yet later on, coming with Jesus' brothers to take charge of Jesus when she thinks things are frankly getting out of hand. The crowds are too big. Jesus is not eating. <laughs> Jewish mother, you know. <laughs> um, because, as she says, he is out of his mind. And now, today, the last two glimpses of Mary in the New Testament. And they are just glimpses. And yet they occur at the climax of the whole story. One is at the crucifixion of Jesus. Crucifixion was a cruel and degrading way to execute someone. It was both literally excruciating, the word comes from the word on the cross, and an utterly shameful, degrading way to die in public. By this time, many of Jesus' disciples have forsaken him and fled. But not all. John 19, verse 25. Near the cross, that's it, near the cross, stood his mother with 
his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. By the way, three Marys and four women. <laughs> four women, at least, are still there, including his mother. Now, we cannot imagine, nor does the gospel tell us in any way, what she was feeling and thinking in that awful time. Certainly, Simeon's words, a sword will pierce your own soul too, have come true with a vengeance. But she is not hidden from it, but has literally faced it head on. Remarkable. What we are told is that Jesus spoke to her from the cross. He sees his mother and another disciple, oh, they're not all fled, standing there. He's described in the text, as you heard, as, quote, the disciple whom Jesus loved, but is not named here nor anywhere in the Gospel of John. He plays an important role, but never named. Then again, Mary's never named either in the Gospel of John. We, know, we, we are in no doubt who his mother is, though. As for this disciple, there are scholarly disputes about who he might be. Is he John Zebedee, a fisherman from up north in Galilee, or another person called John, who is a disciple of Jesus, who lives in the, who's based in Jerusalem? Whatever the answer, he presented to us as an eyewitness and the one who testifies to a lot that goes on in this gospel. That's why it's so important to the gospel. And also as very close to Jesus personally. Jesus on the cross addresses them both. Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. Actually, the word translated here is, is literally the word look or see in old-fashioned language, behold. To his mother, woman, look, your son. And to the disciple, look, your mother. In other words, they are now to see each other quite differently. He's creating a relationship. She's now his mother as well. He is now her son as well. And as the gospel records, and I quote, from this time on, the disciple took her into his home. The disciple took her into his home. Possibly, if I'm right, it's, the, it's not the Zebedee into Jerusalem. Uh, we don't know. Jesus is making provision for his mother in his hour of extremity. We do not know why he thinks it's necessary. This is necessary given that Jesus already has brothers and sisters. But no, he gives her the care of his closest friend and declares him to be her son. That's the, that's, that's the one glimpse. The other glimpse is the last one we have, actually, in the New Testament story. It's now a month or so later. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He has appeared numerous times to his disciples. He's even been teaching them about the kingdom of God. Then one day we read he's taken from, him, from them and a cloud hides him from their sight. But they are told to stay in Jerusalem to wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now listen to how Luke describes this scene. It's worth recounting again. Luke 1, 12 and follow. Then the disciples returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. You're only allowed to walk a short distance on the Sabbath. The Mount of Olives is within that range, just over the hill. 
When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. That's interesting, but they've got a house, a room they're living in. Those present were, and then Luke lists who they are. Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas son of James. He goes on. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, with the women, hello, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and, all, and his, with his brothers, with the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now, there's so much you'd like to know. What did Mary make of all this? The resurrection of her son, the teaching about the kingdom of God, the promise of the Holy Spirit, because there she is obviously in the middle of it all. Surprisingly, with Jesus' brothers, which is very surprising because they've been seen somewhat offside with Jesus before this. How are they there? Though I do notice there's a clue in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul, recounting those to whom the risen Christ appeared, has this rather appealing phrase, then he appeared to James. And we know from Galatians 1.19, James is the name of the Lord's brother. Wouldn't you love to know what that appearing to James, to his brother, was about? Now, if Mary is, as it seems, an active participant in the earliest Christian community, the early church, you might call it, then she must have been included in what happens in Luke chapter 2. Because verse 1 says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. They were all together in one place. And we know probably, I think, 120 were told were there. So that means she was there on that day when there was a sound like a mighty wind through the, through the room and, and, and the whole house was filled with it and tongues of fire appealed to everybody and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak praising God in other languages. She was there, fully in the middle of it. In fact, she's come full circle. From the angel telling her back in chapter 1 of Luke, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God, conceived by the Holy Spirit, to now being included in that moment, the moment, as Peter will explain, to the crowds of the day of Pentecost about Jesus, exalted at the right hand of God, says Peter. He, that's Jesus, received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. The risen Lord received the gift of the Holy Spirit from God the Father and he has poured it out. Having been conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, now the risen and exalted Jesus pours that promised Holy Spirit in power upon his disciples and the women and his mother. And that is the last we see of Mary, the woman of the Holy Spirit. The rest of the New Testament is silent about her, which is rather remarkable given how very soon after, in the next hundreds or so years, the church made a lot more fuss about it as they do today. But 
she just, that's the last glimpse we have. Oh, there's one exception, I forgot. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul, in passing, mentions her. He is describing the liberation that he and his fellow Jews, those under the law, have received by the coming of the Son of God. Here's what he wrote, Galatians 4.4. But when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. And given that Galatians may well be one of the first written New Testament documents, and not forgetting that although the events they describe are before the letters, the Gospels and Acts were most certainly written after, certainly after the early letters, this statement by Paul to the Galatians is the earliest extant mention of Mary we have. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman. And at the end of the day, that says it all, really, about Mary of Nazareth, the God-bearer. Let's pray. Almighty God, who looked upon the lowliness of the Blessed Virgin Mary and chose her to be the mother of your only son, grant that we who are redeemed by his blood may share with her in the glory of your eternal kingdom. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord.